be seated. Amen. Well, wonderful to see everybody here this morning, and it's a great honor for us to continue our worship this morning as we'll spend some time in the Word of God together. Uh, we want to welcome you this morning uh, if you're visiting with us, and we pray that your time here today will be a blessing uh, to you, and we uh, pray that uh, your, your presence here with us is a blessing to us, and we pray that uh, your time here will bless you. Uh, we're in a study of 1 Peter right now. That's the book that we're going through. And our text this morning is 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. We've titled this series, Still Standing. And our passage this morning will be 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Um, Isaac Asimov uh, tells the story of a cruise ship that ran into some really uh, rough waters, and a man named Mr. Jones became terribly sick. And uh, at an especially kind of rough time, a kind steward patted uh, Mr. Jones on the shoulder as he was hanging over the side of the ship. And he said, I know, sir, that this seasickness seems awful, but remember, no one ever died of seasickness. And Mr. Jones lifted his green countenance up to the steward and said, man, don't say that. It's only the wonderful hope of dying that's keeping me alive. I like that story because we all need hope. And in fact, we can't live without it, and no matter how bad things get, we have to have some hope uh, to cling to. Um, Os Guinness, the great Christian thinker, uh, said this one time, he said, hope is oxygen for the soul. Um, all of us need hope, especially in dark days, um, especially in, in troubled times. We need a, a hope, a fixed certain hope to cling to, but tragically, uh, hope today seems to be in short supply in our culture. I ran across this quote in some reading I was doing recently, and the author said this, We live in a day of despair. The suicide rate in America has increased 24% since 1999. 24%. He said, we've, the problem is we've never been more educated. We have tools of technology our parents could not have dreamed of. We're saturated with entertainment and recreation, yet more, more and more people are orchestrating their own deaths. How could this be? And he says, among the answers must be this, people are dying for a lack of hope. Secularism sucks the hope out of society. It reduces the world to a few decades between birth and a hearse. Many people believe this world is as good as it gets, and let's face it, it's not that good. It's tragic what we see happening in our culture today. And again, I think that's right. Secularism just sucks the hope uh, right out of society. We need a certain hope in uncertain times, uh, something that we can hang on to that won't change, uh, that won't move, and uh, that won't fail us when we need it most. And I think all of you know this. I hope you do. The Bible is a book of hope. I mean, hope literally explodes from the pages of the Bible. And our God is a God of hope. And of all of the books that we have in the Scripture, no book is more hope-filled than 1 Peter. In fact, this book has often been called the Epistle of Hope. Uh, many people have pointed out that the Apostle Paul was kind of the apostle of faith. The Apostle John was the apostle of love. And the Apostle Peter was known as the apostle of hope. Because the ideas of hope and heaven and the return of Jesus and future glory literally saturate this book of 1 Peter. They permeate every chapter. And even here in our section, we'll be looking at here the next couple of weeks. In verse 13, it begins with hope. And you'll notice at the end of verse 21, you have the word hope there again. So kind of a, a bookended section, kind of a homily on hope, if you will. Let me read uh, our verses here for us this morning. Therefore, gird your minds for action. 
Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So reads God's Word. In verse 13, as we come to this passage this morning, this verse marks an important transition or turning point now in this letter. And the shift is marked by this transitional word, the word therefore. In other words, in light of all that I've said, here's what you need to do. And I think this therefore reaches all the way back to verses 1 to 12. Now remember again, if you've been with us, we've pointed out the original audience Peter's writing to are primarily Jewish believers living in what is uh, today a modern-day Turkey. Uh, They're being harassed and, and facing hostility for their faith in Christ. They're not suffering physical persecution yet. There's no beatings or no martyrdom that's taken place. But they live in a culture that mocks and insults their faith, much like what we live in today. So they lived in tough times. And Peter begins in the first 12 verses of this book to ground them in their salvation. That's the most important thing, to lay the foundation of what Jesus Christ has done for them. So in verses 1 to 12, we have a sweeping summary and celebration of our salvation. Now that's the theme. You know, it's verse 5, the word salvation. Verse 9, the word salvation. Verse 10, uh, the, the word salvation. So Verses 1 to 12, though, focus exclusively on what God has done for us. Notice in uh, verses 1 and 2, it's it's the source of our salvation. Uh, Verses 3 through 5, the security of our salvation. Verses 6 through 9 are the strength of our salvation. We can rejoice even in the midst of trials. And we finished up last time in verses 10 to 12 with the significance or the splendor of our salvation, how great and majestic it really is. But in all of verses 1 to 12, there's not a single command. There's no exhortations, no admonitions, no imperatives in the first 12 verses. It's all what God has done for us. But in verse 13 now, there's an abrupt shift. We move from the indicative to the imperative. We move from doctrine now to duty. We move from our position now to our practice. Uh, verse 13 here, with the, beginning with the word therefore, reminds me of a man who talked to a preacher after his sermon one time, and he said, you had a really good sermon today until you got to all those therefores. And that's kind of the way it is when we study the Bible. Sometimes people like it when you just give a lot of information. When you get to the therefores and say, now here's how we're to live in light of this, a lot of people begin to cringe at the therefores. But Peter now is getting to the therefores, how we live out uh, what we know and who we are. And all of life, the Christian life, ultimately boils down Uh, to the therefores. Now, what I think is fascinating here is after 12 verses of, again, this sweeping celebration of all God has done for us, in verse verse 13, we come to the very first command or imperative in the book. Now, you could just think in your mind, what would be the first command or imperative that Peter would give uh, to these believers? I mean, what would you expect him uh, to tell them? The answer will probably surprise you. In the middle of the verse, we have the first imperative. 
the two statements before this are, are not imperatives. They kind of uh, describe um, how this imperative will be, will, will be carried out. But the imperative is fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The very first command in the book, set your hope on that grace that's going to be brought to you when Jesus Christ comes again. And really, in some ways, this command, this first command, shouldn't surprise us because people living in troubled times need hope above everything else. And so that's where Peter begins. And so that's where we're going to begin And I want to unpack these three verses under three simple headings about our hope. The power of hope, the promotion of hope, and the product of hope. So let's begin with uh, the power of hope in verse 13. Um, A man now one time approached a little league baseball game that was going on, and he walked up to the dugout and asked a boy what the score was. And he said, well, it's 18 to nothing, and we're behind. And the man said, well, man, you must be really discouraged. And the boy said, why should I be discouraged? We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. (laughs) Now, that's hope, I guess. At least it's some kind of hope, isn't it? Uh, But, you know, when we think about hope, there's a lot of things that come to our mind. You know, we often think of just kind of wishful thinking. But in in the Bible, um, hope is future faith. Um, It's desire with expectancy. It's something you desire to happen and you expect to happen. It's a, a, a confident certainty in God's promises. But it's both of those elements of desire and expectancy. You know, you, you may desire to win the lottery, but I hope you don't expect to win it because you're probably not going to, right? And there's things we expect to happen that we don't desire. But hope is desire with expectancy. And so he calls upon us here to set our hope, this desire and this expectancy on something. And what are we to put our hope in or what are we to put our hope on? There's a lot of misplaced hopes today. When life gets hard, we look for something to put our hope in. There are a lot of things people hope in today. Someone who's poor in poverty, they may put their hope on education, that it can lift them out of their poverty. There's nothing wrong with having that as a a temporary hope. Maybe someone who's got cancer, been diagnosed with cancer, they have hope in in the doctors and the medicine uh, that, that God has provided to help them. There's all kinds of things people put hope in, status, education, money, the stock market, uh, their their spouse, their children, you know, people today putting their hope in the Green New Deal or Donald Trump or the Republican Party or whatever it is. Our hope, our ultimate hope is not to be in any of those things. We can appreciate those things and we can work for, uh, for things and people that we believe in, but we aren't to fix our ultimate hope on any of those things, because if we do, they'll fail us when we need them most. He says here, our hope is to be in the grace that God is going to bring to us when Jesus Christ returns. So what he's talking about here is the final consummation of our salvation. We've experienced grace. We've been saved. We're being saved. But this looks at the completion of our salvation. And you all know that grace means what's undeserved. And so a good way to describe this grace that we're to focus our minds upon is all the storehouse of undeserved blessings that will be ours when Jesus comes. So what's in that storehouse of blessings? Well, a lot of things. An incorruptible, immortal, imperishable body. A seeing Jesus, being with Him, receiving rewards, experiencing heaven, Ruling with Jesus Christ on the earth, 
seeing loved ones, the fullness of joy, an inexpressible peace, rest, on and on we could go. He says, look, fix your hope on the grace, that, that unreserved, uh, that undeserved storehouse of blessings that God has stored up for you, that he's going to bring to you whenever Jesus Christ uh, returns to this earth, when he's revealed. Now notice he says too, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. So our hope is to fully be expressed or fully be set upon this grace and these undeserved blessings we're going to receive when our salvation is finalized. The Phillips translation says, rest the full weight of your hope upon these things. I mean, in Romans 15, 13, it says, abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to have an abounding, complete, full hope in these things. I was uh, driving to Dallas a few weeks ago, and I was in a blinding rainstorm. I mean, it was the hardest downpour I've ever experienced. Never been any, in, in anything like it. And I'm one of those people, you know, no matter how bad it gets, I'm not pulling off the road, you know, kind of deal. But I had my windshield wipers on the highest setting, and they were no match for this downpour. I had to, to pull over, finally, ultimately, underneath an overpass. I mean, the rain abounded. I mean, it was just pouring down. And I thought of that this week, that, that God wants our hope to abound. He, wa- he wants our hope to be like a downpour. God wants to drench your world and my world uh, with hope in the midst of a world that's becoming more hopeless all the time. He wants us to pin our hope completely on the gracious gift of final deliverance that God is going to bring to us through Jesus Christ. He's telling us, look, loosen your grip on this world and tighten your grip on the world to come. Set your hope on those blessings that will be yours when Jesus comes. I love this. He says, fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you. Literally, you could translate that. It'll be carried to you. In other words, we don't produce it. It's brought to us freely by the grace of Jesus Christ, just like every other part of our salvation. When it's finalized, he's going to bring that final installment, if you will, uh, to us through his coming. Now, all of this means to me in my life, in your life, we're to live expectantly. And there's all kinds of signs out there in the world today that indicate the coming of Christ could be very near. I mean, signs are lighting up in our world today like runway lights preparing the the way uh, for, for the coming of Jesus. I mean, we see Israel back in their land. We see, uh, and they're in the news every day. We see a globalism today that's set up for one world ruler that the Bible predicts is coming. We see all the the turmoil that's happening in the Middle East. You and I have every reason to wake up every morning and say, perhaps today could be the day that Jesus comes. And we need to do that. Yet tragically, I think most Christians, especially here in America, probably rarely, if ever, think about the grace that's going to be brought to us when Jesus comes. There's an old saying that says, you know, the darker the outlook, the brighter the uplook. And if that's true, the uplook's pretty bright right now. Now, how do we set our hope completely on, on, on the Lord Jesus Christ and His coming? I call this the promotion of hope. So here in verse 13, a little grammar lesson just for a moment. There in the middle of the verse, fix your hope as an imperative. The two statements before it are participles that tell us how we fulfill the command. So he gives us two keys here to unlock a hopeful outlook. And the first one is, gird your minds for action. 
The NIV says, prepare your minds for action. But the most literal translation of this is the old King James that says, gird up the loins of your mind. So, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's a very powerful image. Uh, Back in that day, men wore uh, long flowing robes. And whenever they needed to move about freely and not get their legs tangled up, they would gird their loins, which means they'd reach down and grab the bottom of that robe and pull it up and tuck it in their belt. So they converted what was a skirt or a robe into kind of like a pair of shorts where they could move about easily and allow more freedom of movement with their legs. You know, we would say something today like, you know, roll up the sleeves of your mind or take off uh, the warm-up. But it's the idea of gathering the loose ends of your mind together to avoid getting entangled in them. You could translate this, pull your thoughts together or belt up your mind. But, But the key thought here is don't let the garment or the loose ends of your mind drag around down in the dirt of this world. When I was at seminary, at Dallas Seminary, uh, you you go to class every day, and there's not a lot of moments that stand out in my mind, but I can remember specifically when we were going through 1 Peter in a course with Dr. Stanley Toussaint, and he came to this passage and developed this image. And I can tell you that since that day, literally hundreds upon hundreds of times, this image has helped me with my thought life. So I'm going along in my daily uh, routines, and all of a sudden, thoughts come into your mind that you know shouldn't be there. And the thought that comes to my mind very, very often is gird up the loins of your mind. You got these thoughts, and they're just kind of down there like the bottom of a robe, just kind of going where they will. You need to come and, and harness those and pull those thoughts together. It's a powerful image to use because our minds can go all kinds of places, many times places they shouldn't go. And we can all apply this to many, many areas of life. One area today that's so key, that's a scourge in our society, is the area of pornography and immorality and all the things that we see around us. When someone's mind begins to go there, to gird up the loins of your mind, don't let your mind go there. For some people, it's negativity and criticism. For some people, the default mode or the default setting in their mind is to immediately go to just negativity and criticism. Maybe it's jealousy toward other people or gossip or um, just uh, a focus on money and possessions and things you need to buy. Maybe if it's on your weight or calories or exercise or how you look. I mean, it's fine to be concerned about our appearance, but not to have that be the absorbing obsession of our lives. When our mind begins to flow loosely like the end of a robe, the Bible says, gird it up and pull it together. You know, one great test for you and for me is when you don't have anything else you have to think about. Maybe you're driving in the car and there's nothing you have to be thinking about. What do you think about when you don't have to think about something? When your mind can just go where it will? When you, when you just let your mind wander, where does it go? Again, to kind of go back to that image, what's the default setting of your mind? When you're not thinking about something else, just where does it go? Where does it automatically Go to. That's a good test, I think, for where we are spiritually. And Peter's saying, look, if you're going to fix your hope on the grace that's going to be revealed when Christ comes, you're going to have to harness your thinking. Uh, Max Lucado says it like this. This is a, a, a great image. He says, you probably know this, but in case you don't, I'm thrilled to give you the good news. You can pick what you ponder. 
You didn't select your birth date or birthplace. You didn't choose your parents or siblings. You don't determine the weather, the amount of salt in the ocean. There are many things in life over which you have no choice, but the greatest activity of life is well within your dominion. You can choose what you think about. You can be the air traffic controller of your mental airport. You occupy the control tower and can direct the mental traffic of your world. Thoughts circle above, coming and going. If one of them lands, it's because you gave it permission. If it leaves, it's because you directed it to do so. You can select your thought pattern. So what he's saying here is fix your hope upon the grace that's to be revealed when Christ comes. And one of the ways that you do that is you have to gird up the loins of your mind. You have to pull your thoughts together. The second thing here, he says in verse 13, is keep sober in spirit. Keep sober in spirit. Now, literally, that means not to be drunk or intoxicated. And that, that's always a good place to start, right? Uh, don't, get, don't be drunk. But, but he's probably using this in a figurative sense. And it's in the present tense in the Greek. So it means continuously be free of mental drunkenness and intoxication. It's not talking about physical intoxication so much as being anesthetized by the attractions of this world. And all of us know this. I mean, we know this well. It's very, very easy in this world to get intoxicated and drunk with money and possessions and status and pleasure and all of the things that this world offers. And he's saying if you allow your mind and your spirit to become drunken and intoxicated with the things of this world, you're not going to have your hope fixed on the grace that's to be yours at the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, said the same thing back in Luke 21. This is back in uh, the, the Olivet Discourse, the kind of the final sermon Jesus gave a couple days before he died. This is a powerful passage, Luke 21, 34. Listen to what Jesus said. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day, talking about the day of His coming, come on you suddenly like a trap. And listen to this next verse. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. It's coming. But keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus contrasted the, the watchful expectancy of a faithful servant with drunken indifference uh, to the Lord's return. And Peter here is making that same contrast. So he's saying, don't get distracted from your hope. Keep your hope firm and, and focused and fixed upon the final installment of your salvation, the grace that's going to be brought to you when Jesus Christ comes. Now, if we have this kind of hope, this maximum hope, I call it, what will be the result of it in our lives? Well, several things, but the one that's focused on here is very simple. Hope produces holiness. If you really have your hope fixed on the coming of Christ, it's going to produce holy living. That's the connection here. It's hope then holiness. We see the same thing in 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John 3, John says about Christ's coming, he says, everyone who fixes his hope on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you get up in the morning and you think, you know what, I really believe Christ could come back today, I can promise you, you'll live differently. 
There's some things you wouldn't have done that you will do and some things you were thinking about doing that you won't do. If you fix your hope on him, it purifies you just as he is pure. In other words, the hope of the coming of Christ and uh, the, the, the completion of our salvation is a cleansing, purifying hope. I saw this illustrated in a strange way about 30 years ago. Uh, back in 1988, a guy from Arkansas, he was, I think he was a former NASA scientist named Edgar Wisenant, wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Of course, it didn't happen. And then he wrote 89 reasons why, cry, why the rapture will happen in 1989. And I like to always say neither of those books are selling very well nowadays. But, of course, that was, it was false teaching. It, it's reckless speculation. We're never to set dates for Christ's coming. But I had just started seminary then in 1988, and I had a friend of mine who was a pastor in southeastern Oklahoma. And this book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988, was making its rounds, and the rapture was set sometime in September or October that fall. And so a couple months before that, in around August or September, when I just started seminary, this friend of mine who's a pastor in southeastern Oklahoma calls me and says, man, a lot of people in our church are reading this book. You know, what do you think about it? And I gave him the reasons why I thought it was hogwash and all that. But he told me something interesting. He said, you know what's fascinating is a lot of people down here really kind of cleaning up their lives, though. He said a lot more people kind of been coming to church recently. And a lot of people kind of living differently because, you know, they just, this idea, well, you know, what if that old guy's riding and the Lord does come in October or whatever it was of 88, I want to be ready. So they were kind of cleaning up their lives as just kind of an insurance policy, you know, just in case. And I thought about that this week because I thought, think about that, if a, if a false hope, at least temporarily in people's lives, produced holiness, how much more should the true hope of the coming of Jesus Christ produce holy living in our lives? Now, he's going to tell us here in these verses 14 and 16 how we become holy. And he's going to give a negative and a positive. And the negatives in verse 14, the positives in verse 15. The negative is, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Basically what he's saying is, don't live the way you used to live when you lived in unredeemed ignorance. Back when you didn't know what God expected of you. Don't live like that. He's saying we become holy by not being conformed to our former desires. Old sins, again, committed in our unredeemed ignorance are to be left behind. Now, the problem is we all know this, but those old sins come and they call us, don't they? They beckon us. The old life still exerts a powerful influence on our hearts and minds, and temptation is powerful and it's real. I mean, the power of habit is very, very strong. I like the story of a, a new Christian who got baptized and the pastor pushed him under the water and brought him up again and the young man was so excited he, he hugged the pastor and he said, now I won't be tempted to sin anymore. And the pastor looked strangely subdued at him and said, I'm afraid that for you to enjoy that blessing, I would have to keep you under the water quite a bit longer. <laughs> I like that, but, but the, the, the lifelong struggle that every one of us experience with temptation is real. The old life comes constantly calling us and drawing us back to those old sins. I love the great story of Augustine of Hippo. 
Um, Augustine was one of the greatest men in the, in the early church, lived in North Africa, brought up in a very wealthy family. He was a very handsome man. I mean, he had it all. He was brilliant. But he lived a totally sinful, immoral, debauched life. You can read about it. Get, a, get online and read about the life of Augustine of Hippo. But he was dramatically converted and came to faith in Christ. And one day he was walking down the street not long after he was converted. And one of his former mistresses called out to him and she said, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And he responded back, yes, but it is not I. And he kept on walking. He's a new man in Christ. And notice how he begins here as obedient children. Don't be conformed to the former lust. We're not who we used to be. We've been born again into God's family. We're his children. The word conformed here means to to be shaped or formed after, to to pattern your life after. The only other place that word's found is Romans 12.1, where Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Phillips translation says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remake you so that your whole attitude of mind is changed. So he's saying, don't let the world shape you and mold you. Don't go back to living like the time when you didn't know what God wanted from you. So that's the negative. Don't don't go back to that. Don't be conformed to that. The positive in verse 14, notice the contrast, but, verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. So the but here is this strong contrast. Don't be like the world. Don't imitate the world. Imitate the Holy One. Now, the word holy, most of you know this, means to sever or to cut or to separate or to set apart. So to be holy is to be set apart. Now, if we were to say here this morning, what is the number one chief attribute or characteristic of God? If you wanted to describe God in one word above every other word, what word would it be? And I think if you read the scriptures, that word would be the word holy. Now, first of all, God is transcendent in holiness. The word holy means separate or distinct or other. God is wholly other from us. When the angels fly around the throne of God, they're in Revelation chapter 4. What do they cry out night and day? And they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is, who was, and who is to come. They don't say grace, 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 or wisdom, 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 or love, 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 even though those things would be true. Because the, the central characteristic, the core attribute of God is that God is holy. So those beings fly around the throne of God literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and they never stop saying separate, 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 or other, other, other. I mean, God is not like us. He is separate and distinct. God's in a class by himself. He, he stands alone. He isn't bound up with anything else. So God is transcendent in holiness. He's separate. But God is also morally and ethically holy, and that is He's separate from all sin and all unrighteousness. And you and I can't be transcendently holy. Only God is is, is transcendently holy. But we can be ethically and morally holy because holiness is defined by uh, the character of God. 
One man said it like this years ago, a great Scottish theologian, holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. That's what holiness is. It's being set apart from sin to God. And he says here in verse 15, be like the Holy One who called you. And it reminds us here that the experience of our salvation begins with the initiative of God. It's the Holy One that called us into fellowship with Himself. Now, the end of verse 15, to me, this is the real kicker. Be holy in all your behavior. (laughs) The scope of this is universal. Not in some of your behavior, not in most of your behavior, but be holy in all your behavior. The Phillips translation says, in every department of your lives, every moment, every day, every thought, every action, that's what God wants from us. Several years ago, uh, Cheryl and I were out in North Carolina, and, uh, and out we had an afternoon there that was free, and we went to the Biltmore uh, Estate there in, by Asheville, North Carolina. I'm sure many of you have been there. It's uh, the largest privately owned house in America. It's almost 180,000 square feet, 250 rooms, 65 fireplaces. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, place to visit. But as we were going through the tour there, I noticed over and over again, many sections were roped off. They were off limits. Now, it's interesting. That's the places everybody wanted to go, right? You'd see people kind of trying to get over there and look at it. Something about our nature, we want to see that. But, but I thought about that in our lives, you know, as believers. Sadly, when it comes to being set apart to God and being holy, All of us here this morning probably have at least some small room or maybe a closet or some area of our life that we've kind of roped off that's off limits to God. He says, I want you to be holy in all of your behavior. All your behaviors to be set apart to me. But so often we'll set our marriage apart or our family or maybe our work or maybe it's our money or our finances. Maybe it's our thinking Maybe it's our interactions with the opposite sex. On and on we could go, but some area of our life where we're saying, Lord, I I want to be holy in all these other areas, but I want to keep this one little room or this closet kind of separated off where I can do what I want to do. He says, no, I want you to be holy in all of your behavior. Here's what Tim Chester, he's a pastor in England, he says this, Holiness knows no boundaries. It defines our friendships, marriages, work, leisure, finances, and politics. Holiness is as much about what you do on Monday morning on the factory floor as it is about what you do on Sunday morning in a church gathering. Holiness is as much about the kind of neighbor you are as the kind of church member you are. Holiness is as much about who you are when you're holding a steering wheel as it is when you're holding a Bible. Ouch, that hurts, doesn't it, there at the end? But it's every area of life. And then he closes in verse 16, because it is written, he quotes Leviticus 11.44, you shall be holy because I am holy. It's, it's, it's a command that God gives to us, not just a suggestion. So what's the hope that you and I have in an uncertain world? Our hope is the completion of our salvation. It's that Jesus Christ, when He comes someday, is going to bring a storehouse of unreserved blessing, of undeserved blessings to us as His people. That is our hope. 
that the salvation that was begun when we were saved and that God is working in us now will someday be finalized when Christ comes. And that hope is kept alive by keeping our mind in harness and staying alert. And this living hope is given to us to motivate us to stop doing what we used to do and to start doing what God does. And of course, the key question for all of us here this morning is, do you have this hope? This hope is found in a person. It's found in Jesus. All the way back in 1 Peter 1.3, he says, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ ultimately is our hope. And if you have him, you have hope. If you don't have him, you have no hope. There's really two philosophies in the world. There's hope and there's despair. Someone put it like this, life with Christ is an endless hope. Without him, it's a hopeless end. That's really it. That's, that's all of life. Life with Christ is going to be an endless hope. But without him, people are going to come to a hopeless end. And those are the only two choices really there are in life. So if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I offer you this morning through him an endless hope. If you'll trust in him and believe in him. He died for you. He rose again. He'll wash away your sins and he'll give you a living hope. When you're born again into his family by believing in him and trusting him as your savior. I want to close with a story I read from Robert J. Morgan. We'll close with this. This, uh, this really challenged me and I want to share it with you. He says, one morning several months ago, I rose, uh, uh, I rose in the wee hours and drove to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where hundreds of people had gathered in the pre-dawn chill to await a battalion of soldiers returning from Iraq. My close friend Stephen Pierce was among them. I wanted to be there to welcome him and his men home. Stephen had shipped out immediately after seeing his little boy born, and now Madden was a toddler. Others of the soldiers had never seen their children, some of whom were almost a year old. Many mothers were there holding babies, awaiting their husbands. The troops had been away longer than expected, almost a full year. Children, parents, grandparents, girlfriends and boyfriends, brothers and sisters, hundreds of us shivered in the cold but without complaint. Emotions ran high because Stephen's platoon had been ambushed and the ensuing intense fight had taken the life of, of one of the men. Stephen himself had been wounded in battle and it was a near miraculous that any of the men had survived. Now they were almost home. Over the loudspeakers came the announcement the planes were approaching. With hundreds of others, I, filled, I filed from the hangar onto the tarmac and strained to see into the darkness. A few minutes later, a shout went up, then a roar of delight. Two tiny specks, taillights blinking in the distance, approached as though in slow motion. Finally, the planes rolled up to the hangar, and as the soldiers disembarked, there were shouts, cries, tears, and the popping of flashbulbs. The troops lined up in formation, and shortly afterward came the words, fall out. Instantly, the hangar became a sea of hugs, embraces, touches, and tears. If the combined emotion of that building could have been harnessed, I think it would have powered every factory in America. I've never experienced so much emotion in such a concentrated time and place, and I'll never forget it. But then he said this, and this is what grabbed me. Only later, he said, did this thought come to me. Am I equally emotional and equally eager for the return of Jesus? Am I awaiting the announcing blast of the trumpet? Am I casting a yearning eye to the sky, waiting for the moment when the Lord's army will fall out and be caught up? Am I aching for the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will, appear to, will, will give to me on that day and all those who've loved his appearing? 
I'm afraid if most of us are really honest here this morning, we'd have to say, you know, I don't really think that much about the final consummation of my salvation and the coming of Christ. Yet the very first imperative Peter gives in this book is set your hope completely on that grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, God will produce a life of holiness in every area of our lives. Let's open ourselves to him and allow him to do that. Let's pray together. Father, if there is anyone here this morning outside of Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that they will see this morning that without him, all that awaits them is a hopeless end. And that they'll come to faith in him and trust in him and find a living hope by being born again into your family. And they'll have an endless hope through him. Father, for those of us who know you, I pray that these words this morning will ring in our hearts through this week. And that sometime every day in this coming week and months, we'll think to ourselves, perhaps today, today might be the day that Jesus comes. And we'll set our, our hearts on that storehouse of, of blessings that you're going to bring to us. And Father, I pray that that hope will be a purifying hope in our lives. We'll open our hearts and lives to you, Father. Every room, every closet of our lives will be brought into submission to you. And Father, help us with our thought lives. Our minds go so many places they shouldn't go. Well, Father, help us to gird up the loins of our mind and bring every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Father, may we be found faithful when Jesus comes. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.